I want to talk on that subject, what on earth is the church for? I'd like you to turn to Luke chapter 24. This is the last of our sessions on Luke. We've been, not every verse by any means, but we've been touching every chapter, I think, to be fair, over the last nearly 10 months or so, I think, now. And we're finishing uh, with the last few verses today. So I'd like you to turn to Luke 24 and verse 44. Verse 44, Luke 24. Jesus is speaking. He's speaking to the disciples. And uh, we'll look a little more at the exact context in a moment. The resurrected Jesus. He said to them, verse 44, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my father has promised But stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. When he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. Really, to do this justice... You need to read this little passage parallel with Acts 1, verses 1 to 11. And I think on the notes for for community group uh, word, I've suggested you do that. Because they're both written by the same person, Luke. He wrote Acts as a sequel to to the Gospel. It's, It's written totally, obviously, and up front as two parts of a whole. And this is the overlap point. So when you read chapter 1 of Acts, you get a little more information about this period of time and this sort of, uh, just this little cameo time after the resurrection, what Jesus taught before the ascension. And you put the two together and you perhaps get a slightly fuller picture of those 40 days. So I'm going to be drawing a little bit on that without turning to it and uh, without reading it this morning. But these, what I want to do is to think about the big questions. And these verses answer the big questions about the disciples who Jesus left behind. About us, really, the church, the disciples. The big questions that are relevant to us here at Winchester Family Church. They're relevant to every church and every real Christian. Questions like, what are we meant to be doing? (laughs) What are we on earth for? What are we about? What is the bottom line stuff? What's the main agenda? Those sort of questions. I want to point out too that the teaching of Jesus here was not merely to the eleven. The eleven hand-picked apostles, one of whom had been Judas, of course, who betrayed him. It's not merely to that. If you look at verse 33, Luke 24, verse 33, and I think some of these will go up on the screen, it's the context of what we've read. They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together. So this is the eleven and those with them. 
It is a little band of disciples of Jesus who continued to gather together, a bit battered at that point because they still had yet to encounter the risen Jesus fully. But, but their spirits and their hearts are changing all the time through the verses we've read. But actually, this is the baby church. This is the infant church. What is said here, what is taught here, is not merely for leaders and it's not just for apostles. It's for the eleven and those assembled with them. The first assembly, which is really what church means. The first church that had gathered together. The first assembly. Perhaps, at maximum, this was 120 people. If we go to Acts 1.15, we find this, uh, this verse. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, brackets, a group numbering about 120. End of brackets. A little aside by Luke, saying that actually there were about 120 when they all got together. I don't think there were necessarily 120 on this exact occasion. I doubt if there were that many. But essentially, the 11 plus, about another 110 or so, were about what there was. There were these 120 people that were the baby church. Not that many. And they weren't movers and shakers either in the world of that time. We could and should treat these verses then as a challenge to us as the church, but also as the relatively small group of people. We don't want to misunderstand these verses as just something for some great, amorphous, mystical, universal church. This is spoken to a bunch of people, and not a great big bunch of people, less than us here this morning, and very ordinary, like us, mixture of people. So what are the answers then to the big questions? What are we meant to be doing? What are we about? Well, I want to use... Three little phrases. I want to talk about the church is to be rooted in scripture, active in mission and filled with the spirit. Because I believe those are the three big elements that come through here. The fundamental things that Jesus seems to uh, bring through to this early baby church, infant church. First of all, rooted in scripture. Verses 44 to 46 have got several references to one to the scriptures by name, which we'll look at in a moment, but to things like it is written, what is written. Jesus is very keen to describe and and to make sure they understand that what's happened is rooted in scripture and that's the foundation of where they're going and what's happening. He wants them to understand that his death, Jesus' death, was not an unfortunate mistake. The resurrection is not a freak, random, amazing incident. Wow, fancy, that happened. That weird one-off miracle. Who'd have thought it? You know, it's not like that. He's saying these two things, my death on the cross, which was a huge shock to them, and they hadn't expected, and my physical resurrection that you're now seeing, these things are not random, oh, like, they are part of God's plan. Indeed, they are the central core of God's big plan for this world, for the very world you live in. And they were predicted in Scripture. They're taught about in Scripture. They are the essential elements that launches something that Scripture has been looking for for millennia, really, for for centuries. The new covenant age. Jesus said a new period of human history is now embarked on. Indeed, I believe it's the climax of the ages, as the New Testament describes it. It is the ultimate age. There is no more after this. That's it. Jesus comes back as as his 
clearly taught in Acts 1 and the thing is wrapped up. New heavens and new earth, day of judgment. This is it. This is the big one. (laughs) This is the one God's been moving towards. His plan needed this to happen. Jesus died and Jesus rose again. And Jesus said, this is all part of the plan. This is how it all makes sense. This is why, if you understand what's happened to me, you'll see what the scriptures are pointing to. This is the gospel age, the new covenant age, the age of the spirit, the church age. You can use all sorts of phrases, but it's our age. It's the time we live in, the new covenant age. Now, the whole Old Testament was moving towards this, and Jesus clearly uh, taught that. He said, you've got to see how the Messiah was predicted. He refers to that, I'm sure. He's going through, in verse 44, the whole Old Testament, in effect, the law of Moses, prophets and Psalms. And he says, you know, the Messiah, the Son of God, the suffering servant of Isaiah, the prophetic words of Isaiah and of Joel and many other places, the, the typology of the high priest and the Passover lamb. I, it would have been a glorious 40 days, because I think it went on for a bit longer than it's indicated in just Luke's account. Through that 40 days, Jesus opened their minds. He tells us that. To, t- to understand the scriptures all about himself and the kingdom that he would inaugurate. The king would come. This was the king, the Messiah. And look how, what a surprise it was, but look how it fits together with scripture. And this king is inaugurating a kingdom. And you, he would be saying, and he's saying it to us, you're my part of my subjects, you're my kingdom. And uh, I'm gathering together a people, a church. Moses had a people, I'm gathering a people, it's you. But you've got a Whereas Moses was looking at just a little patch of land, you've got the world in front of you. This is a whole new ball game. I am the fulfiller, Jesus would have taught, of the promises God made. Now the New Testament teaches that. All the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. God's done everything he needs to do to fulfil all his promise to do. This is it. Jesus has died and risen. Now there's timing... And there's other things, but actually in the end, it's all done now. It's just got to be implemented. This is a new era, Jesus said, and I'm bringing it in. You've seen it in scripture, now here I am. And so the whole of their faith, the whole of their movement was rooted in scripture. And you get this wonderful verse, verse 45. He opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. Do you know, we still need to understand that is a process that goes on fundamental to church life and Christian life. We need to be rooted in Scripture. We need to understand how Scripture applies to us. We need to understand what it says about Jesus and therefore what it says to us and for us. The way faith works, the way God brings faith is through his word. Faith is engendered in the human soul by the mind being open to Scripture. Now, that's picked up elsewhere in the Bible. That is the truth. You won't come to faith, not only salvation, but faith about what God's got for you, faith about the church, faith about mission, faith about anything outside of Scripture. Scripture is the foundation of faith. So they needed their faith raised. And Jesus said, first of all, you've got to see, this isn't some random event. This is God's word. This is God's plan. Let me open the scriptures for you and help you to understand it. The Christian faith is not a religion of merely emotion. I think we need sometimes more emotion than we show because we're very British. And certainly our faith is holistic. It affects our emotions and our body as well. But we are not 
a faith of emotion. We have faith actually rooted in our minds understanding scripture. That's, that's totally how it is. We do not come to faith by emptying our minds like some Eastern meditation. We don't come to faith by just emotion or by closing your mind. Actually, God wants you to use your mind and to open your mind to understand scripture because that is the foundation of what we are building and what you are standing on as a Christian. Faith comes by understanding scripture. And Jesus wanted his disciples rooted in scripture and standing on that ground. So it says he opened their minds to understand. That word's interesting, the word that's translated to understand the scriptures. When I was just looking at a a Greek uh, sort of concordance dictionary thing, it was quite helpful because it doesn't mean that they were complete ignoramuses. They did understand to a degree scripture. Scripture is understandable. It's not a lot of mystical Weird stuff. I mean, you can actually read it at face value and it's sense. The Psalms make sense. You know, people who aren't believers can get quite a lot out of them. You can read the laws. They make sense. You can understand what it says. Read most of it. There's odd little bits and pieces of Ezekiel or something. might puzzle you. But most of it makes sense as you read it at one level. Of course it does. These people knew the Bible. Most of us do. But what we need is our eyes open to how it comes together around Jesus. Now, the word understand, this word translated, means literally this, which is quite fascinating. To collect together the pieces of an object into a whole, rather as though you were collecting the pieces of a puzzle and putting them together. It's one of the Greek dictionary says. The word understand means he collected together pieces that were quite, in their own sense, they were okay, but they needed to be linked together. Ah, now it makes real sense. Now, actually, what Jesus did was showed them that when you get me in place, like the central place, and you relate it to me and what I'm doing, then the whole thing makes sense completely. It all fits together around Jesus Christ. Now, you've got to understand that if you read the Bible without any desire to know anything about Jesus, it will never really make sense. That's Old and New Testament I'm talking about. You need to understand Jesus his death and his resurrection. Otherwise, you'll end up with a sort of legalistic distortion. You'll end up with uh, confusion and all sorts of weird things. In the end, it's all got to line up around Jesus. So even when we look at eschatology and the end times, or when we go back and look at Leviticus and the feasts, or we look at um, some of the Old Testament prophecies, we need to always think, how does this line up around Jesus? This is a real Issue. We need to open our minds to say, what's, where's Jesus in this? Not just little, little riddly sorts of ways, but the big central ways. How was it part of God's plan which finds its full focus in Jesus? It is all about him. It's all about his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and his subsequent anointing on his body, his kingdom that he's building. That's what it's all about. When you get that in place, it all begins to fit together. And it doesn't become so mysterious. Even the end times is not as confusing as people make it. When you understand it's all about Jesus and what he's doing and building and it will come to climax when he returns. And there isn't a sort of subplot of some other plan B. So actually that's a key factor and Jesus helped them to understand it. Now what happens now Jesus has gone back to heaven? Are we left bereft? We don't, it was great to have Jesus leading your Bible study. What a Bible study for 40 days. But what, what about now? Well, there are answers now and Jesus has provided them. The same process is done for us by the Holy Spirit 
who Jesus sent. I just want to quickly fl- flick through some verses, just almost uh, instantly, I don't think on the screen. 1 Corinthians 2.12 tells us, We have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is, who is from God, that we may understand what God has freely given us. We have the Holy Spirit to help us understand what God has freely given us. Or another one, verse 14. The man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually discerned. Right now the key there is to see that just as they needed Jesus to open their eyes, we too need him to open our eyes, and he does it through the Holy Spirit, through the Spirit of Jesus. Otherwise, we're a bit bamboozled on understanding the Scriptures. We can read them, they make sense at one level. But how does this affect me? What is really going on? Or verse 16 of 1 Corinthians 2. For who has known the mind of the Lord that we may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Isn't that wonderful? As a Christian, through the Holy Spirit, you can have your mind opened to understand the Scriptures. We have the mind of Christ. So have you ever wondered, how can I really sort it all out? Do you know, the answer with understanding the Scriptures is actually quite simple. I know you can say, oh, come on, John, it's a little I don't think it is. It's as complicated as we often make it. Here's a large part of the answer. As a Christian, humbly and genuinely pray for Jesus to open your mind to understand it. When you read the Bible, pray about it. When you read the Bible, say, Jesus, help me to understand what's in here about you. Help me to understand what about you affects me. Help me to understand it. Talk about it. I hope you all read the Bible frequently. And I hope that when you read it, you pray as part of your reading. You don't just read it like... you. you It's not studying a textbook. You you say, Lord, help me to understand. Holy Spirit, come on me. Just open my eyes. The real problems to our understanding are not intellect. They're not education. You obviously need to be able to read. And praise God, in our country, that can always be put right. There are education ways. We obviously physically need to be able to read it. But essentially, it's not intellect and education that's the problem ever. It's things like pride, prejudice, sin, Flesh, (laughs) laziness, stuff like that. Our love of the world. Those are the things that cloud our vision. Those are the things that crowd out the truth. And just when we read the Bible, we say, Lord, open my eyes to understand the scripture. Jesus loves to do that. And he has given the mechanism to do it by his Holy Spirit. We have the mind of Christ. We need to be confident. Every true disciple, every true Christian can understand God's word. It's for all of us. So let's be strong in that. Let's be practical. Let's ask him to help us to understand. So we're rooted in scripture. But really, the next one is the sort of big element of, uh, of it. We are to be active in mission. N.T. Wright, in his book on the resurrection, I referred to, that I've been reading recently, and I referred to last week, he says this about the resurrection. Let me just read it to you. The conclusion of the resurrection accounts in Luke and Acts is not, the conclusion is not, you too can have life after death. But it is this. This shows the divine plan for Israel and the world has come to its unexpected climax and you are hereby commissioned to implement it to the world. Now, I know it's a quote, they're not always easy to get, but he's got a good point. We can wrongly think the main point of the resurrection was, hallelujah, we've got life after death. 
Well, you have got life after death. But that's not really the focus at all of, of this bit or any of the New Testament, really. The full focus here is this act of resurrection has shown that God's plan for the world and for Israel has come to its climax. It's been a surprise, but it's happened. And I'm showing you why it's happened, Jesus says. And now I am commissioning you to implement this to the world. That's what the resurrection's about. It's not really about life after death. He's right. Right puts it well. The resurrection has changed the world forever. Everything has shifted. Things have shifted in heaven. Things have shifted on earth. Things have shifted in the demonic. In the demonic. And things have shifted in the angelic. Everything shifted with the resurrection. This is the beginning of the new creation. The long exile of the human race is over. We can proclaim what Adam and Eve lost can be restored. Hallelujah. That's a big change afoot. And verse 47 sums it up. Repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. The death of Jesus and his resurrection three days later are the key events to God's great plan to reconcile himself to fallen men and women. All Adam's fallen sons and daughters, whoever you are, whatever race, whatever nation, whatever culture, there is hope in Jesus. There is a a message to be blown on a trumpet across the world. There's hope. God, you can be reconciled to God. You can have peace with God. You can be a new creation. There is life after death. Yes, it's part of it. There is a future hope through Jesus Christ. And it's for everyone. Every man, woman and child on the planet. The door is open. Will you come through it? Now, these verses that we've just read, these ones particularly, have tremendous implications for us, for Christians, and particularly for Christ's church, for churches. And this is the implication for all of us through the last 2,000 years and for us today. And it's this. Mission to the world is not an activity tacked on to the gospel. It's not an activity tacked on to church life. It reflects the fundamental purpose of God from eternity, which is being worked out right now. And indeed, it is only now it can be worked out. When Jesus comes back, the opportunity will close, things will change. So, mission to the world, let me say it again, is not an activity tacked on to church, or, or, or a little extra thing, we, if, we, if we're really mature and got plenty of time, we can think about it. It's, it's the core purpose of the whole thing in our day and age. Indeed, the entire intent of Scripture is to come to this point. It points to Jesus, to his resurrection, as we said, death and resurrection, to the church that he births, and then to the missionary purpose behind that. The missionary purpose behind the birth of the church is the big answer to the question of what on earth is the church here for. The beginning point for mission is where we are, beginning at Jerusalem, or beginning in at Jerusalem. Beginning at Jerusalem. We could say beginning at Winchester, beginning at the places even we mentioned in prayer today. You may live in Eastley, you may live in uh, Charles Ford or somewhere. Beginning around us. Beginning right where we are. That's the beginning point. But it extends to all nations. That's what it says in the verse. And in Acts 1, verse 8, just to be absolutely clear, it says, to the ends of the earth. 
which does literally mean what it says, to the remotest corners of the globe. So the gospel is to go to the ends of the earth, to the remotest tribe in the remotest place on the earth. There is no equivocation about that. This gospel is for every culture, for every person, from what we would sometimes call primitive to the most sophisticated, from the most educated to the least educated, whatever shade of colour, whatever so-called religion they worship. This is a message for everybody, everywhere. All Adam and Eve's fallen sons and daughters. Mission is the central purpose of God in this age we're in until Jesus comes back. The church of Jesus Christ, including local church, a local expression of that, is always to be missional. We are meant to be missional. This I want to just refer to something, I've already touched it really, but I just sink it in. This commission was not given to some mystical entity. It was given to 120 people. Half, perhaps, what's here this morning, or less, maybe a third of what's here this morning. It was given to a bunch of ordinary people. And actually, I believe there's a wisdom of God in that. He would say the same thing to every 120. (laughs) Okay, 120 is quite an interesting figure. It's a bit bigger than some churches. It's quite a lot smaller than others. But it's certainly a containable sum. Every room full of Christians, it's said to. (laughs) This room full this morning. Maybe 320 or 420, I don't know. But 120, you know, basically, this is not, okay, this is for the mystical church. This is for every bit of the church. The whole deal is for all of us. And he expects 120 ordinary people to take it seriously, like he did then. And probably, as some of them did, to actually be implementing it, as some of them did in the next 30 years. The book of Acts, by the way, is the history of 30 years of church history. The book of Acts covers 30 years which I think is quite remarkable when you think about it. And I believe it is deliberately provocative by God that he expects a similar experience through every 30 years of his church history. Each generation is a new generation. They haven't heard the gospel because the last generation had died off and the world is still there. They didn't have a clue how big it was when he said this. Only Jesus knew that. But nevertheless, he says it to them and he says it to us. And so in each generation, each 30 years worth of church life needs to think the way the book of Acts thought and the church thought then. And I want us to think that way. I pray that God will challenge me too to keep, keep thinking that way. Because this isn't theoretical. The mission is ever-widening circles. That's something we often say. Beginning at Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. As it says in Acts 1, verse 8. Now I think that's a timeless strategy. It's just simple and again very wise as God is. Just what does it mean? Well, it means we live with attention. (laughs) We want to see the gospel taken to the nations as far afield as not only Shalom, but out in the Garrow Hills and and beyond that, maybe other places. I know on Dave's heart, places like Bhutan and goodness knows where. But because God gives some people those sort of things to help us and provoke us. So there's that. But the other side of it, or tension, it's not a, it's, it's it held together, is that right here needs the gospel. They both need it. Winchester needs it. We begin at Jerusalem, but we go to the ends of the earth. I don't know that's chronological. I think you're probably, in the end, doing both at once. Um, And actually, as long as someone in our neighbourhood, around here, or where you live, doesn't know about Jesus, then that mission is not fulfilled. 
As long as someone in your workplace doesn't know about Jesus, someone in your family doesn't know about Jesus, then this mission is not fulfilled, as well as as long as though someone in an unreached people group doesn't know. <laughs> They're both a challenge to us. We can't all do everything, but we have all got to live with this. This is said to the whole church. This is for all of them, not just the 11. We all live with it. And together, we're all involved in this amazing, privileged and challenging project of God of reaching the nations with the gospel. So let's also be clear what the message is of the mission. What is the message of the mission? The worldwide message, and it is worldwide. Unashamedly, I say that. It's worldwide. Every culture, what is it? It's simply this. It's in, really, verses basically 46 and 47, really. It's that Jesus Christ died and rose again, and as a result, forgiveness of sins is available to all who repent and turn to God. Essentially, that is the core message. Now, can I say very clearly and openly, because I think we need to handle this wisely, but it is true. If it doesn't contain that somewhere, then it's not Christian mission. Okay? Yeah, it was true. If this isn't somewhere central, somehow it's proclaimed or lived or talked about, about Jesus Christ dying and rising and about you having the possibility of forgiveness of sins and reconciliation to God as you repent and turn to God through Jesus Christ, if that's not in it, it's not part of this. It might be some honourable thing like an Oxfam exercise, I'm not belittling it, but it's not part of what Jesus is commissioning. And we need to really hold that very strongly. So as we do our works of kindness, we must always think this isn't going to really bring them into what God had in mind. They're not going to have eternal life without hearing this. They're not going to go to heaven, if you like, without hearing this. They're not going to be a new creation changed on the inside without hearing this. It's not going to solve the real problem if it doesn't contain this bit. We must see that. And that applies within our own cultures and subcultures. Sometimes we get very wrapped up in, in rightly wanting to help the poor or to help drug addicts or whatever in our own culture or to help very wealthy people or whatever. But if we don't have the gospel in there somewhere, it, we, well, I would say we're nearly wasting our time. We're not because we're doing good. But we're not really getting to the nub of what it's all about. It's not going to solve anything fundamentally. Make their life a little easier for a while, hopefully. And it's the same international culture. We may go into a culture that is very different. We may respect it and think, oh, isn't it beautiful? And it is beautiful sometimes, the things people have. But in the end, we're not about taking them into Western culture, but we are about taking kingdom culture. We are about taking the gospel. And if that undermines some of their other religious-based culture, so be it, like it does in any other culture. It doesn't matter. People's ethnic culture is not more important than the gospel, but we're certainly not trying to westernise them. But there is a difference, and I think we've got to be very honest and clear. Whatever we do, it's fundamentally got to have this bit in it. It's about Jesus, and it's about getting reconciled to God by your sins being forgiven. As I said, there's obviously much more to it, you could say. Kingdom works, loving acts, signs and wonders, prayer. They're all part of what we do. But repentance and forgiveness of sins in and through the name of Jesus are the first and most important thing that ought to be said to every man, woman and child on the whole planet. 
Alright? On the whole planet, whether they're a headhunter in Borneo or a drug addict in London or a millionaire in the West End or whoever they are or someone around Winchester or probably in the middle there or not too many headhunters anyway. You know, that, that is the first and most important thing that they need to hear. That God has demonstrated his love. Jesus has died. Jesus is alive and through repentance, forgiveness of sins in the name of Jesus is available to you and to every man, woman and child on the planet. Now that's a profound and important truth and we hold to it. That you can't enter the kingdom of God without that. You can't be a new creation without that. You won't have eternal life without that. But that door is open to anyone who will walk through in Jesus' name. It's wonderfully inclusive, actually, as well as being a fairly exclusive message that is, it's through Jesus alone. And it says, beginning at Jerusalem, which obviously is a strategy thing to some extent, but there's a, another wonderful grace truth in it, I think. Wonderful grace truth. Jesus specifically says, beginning at Jerusalem. And I think there's a message there Nobody has fallen so far that they cannot hear this message and have hope. Because actually, Jerusalem could, you say, be the last place they would preach it. Jerusalem had just rejected Jesus Christ. Jerusalem had just, in effect, abused him physically and psychologically and crucified him. And yet Jesus says, begin at Jerusalem. See, we can get very religious and say, oh yes, it's all to do with the Jews and, the, and, the, and possibly, you know, obviously there were other layers to it. It was all to do with a strategy. You start where you are. Well, I've done that this morning. But actually underneath that, it's a grace thing. There's a grace thing there. Jesus doesn't say, and by the way, Jerusalem is going to be fried with fire from heaven. You know, like Sodom and Gomorrah. Because Jerusalem has just crucified me, so they're going to be in for it. No, no. He says, tell this good news to Jerusalem first. Isn't that wonderful? I think that's wonderful. It blessed me when I thought about that. That means that nobody is too far from the grace of God. I don't care how deeply you've sinned. I don't care how persistently you've sinned. I don't care how wicked you're at. I do care that it happened, but I don't care in terms of the gospel. The gospel can reach to you. Jesus said, and begin at Jerusalem. Begin where they've just crucified me. Begin where they've just mocked me and spat on me. Begin where they've just nailed me up on a cross. Tell them of repentance and forgiveness of sins that is available to them through what I have done. I think it's wonderful. Let's move on to the last one. Filled with the Spirit. Because Jesus then goes on in in the last few verses we read, particularly verses 48 and 49, to say something else. He says in verse 48, You are my witnesses. Now again, I want to emphasise, this is to all the disciples. They're all called to be witnesses. We're all called, every one of us, to be a witness to Jesus. Now, we may have different giftings, we definitely have, but we are called to be witnesses. And just a very brief thing, a witness declares what they know to be true, but a witness has got no power to force someone to accept their testimony. So there's a slight blessing in that. You know, all we can do is witness to what Jesus has done. All we can do is tell them about Jesus and his love. You can't force them to believe you. When you give witness in a court, you know, you give your testimony, you do as accurate as you can, you're as honest as you can, but then others have to decide if they believe that and what they do with it. 
Others have to decide, what do I do in the light of this testimony? So there's a balance there. There's a great responsibility on us to be witnesses, but there's a sense in which that's all we are. God alone can move into a human heart and open the door. The Holy Spirit needs to work in a person's life. So let's, let's hold that sort of balance as well. But we cannot be witnesses just in our own strength. And boy, do we know that. I mean, we're scared. I'm scared. We feel you're weak. You feel you're confusing. I feel um, I've got anything to say that's worth saying. I mean, sometimes you think, I feel very weak. Now, Jesus said, you are weak. And you, to be my witnesses, you are going to need something more than you've got. And that comes out in uh, verse 49. I am going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. Now, let's just, as we're all fairly, many of us are fairly uh, acquainted with Scripture, so let's just make a comment. This is one of the ways Jesus described what they needed to be witnesses. They needed to be clothed with power from on high, and I think that's a pretty good phrase. But it seems, as you read Acts, say, 1 and 2, that exactly the same experience could be described in other ways. Baptised in the Holy Spirit. Now, baptised means immersed completely. You need to be immersed in the Holy Spirit. He needs to be in you and on you. Another phrase, you need to receive the Holy Spirit. You need to receive him. Another phrase in those first couple of chapters of Acts, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. They needed to be absolutely filled up with the Holy Spirit. But the one we've got here is clothed with power from on high. I submit to you that essentially it's describing the same event. But, whatever you call it, we all need it. Do we not? Do you not feel you need to be clothed with power from on high? Do you not feel you need to be filled with the Spirit? (laughs) Receive the Spirit. Come upon me. I mean, I don't care what you call it. I want it. And I want more of it. And I want to go on in the good of it. And I'm not going to be able to do what God's called me to do without it. The literal sense of the phrase, one commentary I looked at, which was quite helpful, the literal sense of this phrase, clothed with power from on high, is this. It's nice, actually. Listen to this. You will have something put on you from heaven which you do not naturally possess. Oh, glory. That made you feel a little bit tingly. That's me, actually. I feel a bit more tingly even saying it to you. You, The commentaries can really bless you, can't you? This is what it really means. You will have something put on you from heaven which you do not naturally possess. Whew. You know, if you're going to do this, you 120, you 320, 420, if you're going to do this, you need something put on you from heaven which you do not naturally possess, which will give you power. That's the rest of that commentary. Which will give you power. Now, what's power? Well, power is the ability to do it. I mean, power is that. It's not like just like, whoa, power, power rangers. No, power is the ability to do it. The authority and ability, perhaps, to be more precise. You have the authority and the ability to do what I'm asking you to do. And you need something to come upon you. I like that phrase, I'm going to live with that. You will, something put on you from heaven, which you do not nat- naturally possess, which will empower you to do this. Whew. Hallelujah. Now, that was possible. I'm not even going to linger over the next bit. Sorry, people with the PowerPoint, because I don't want to waffle about it. But I, I just want to say, this was possible 
was not, I'm sorry, strictly possible right at that moment because Jesus needed to ascend on high first. I had a couple of scriptures which I'm happy to flick on the screen, but I'm not going to linger on them. It was very clear in John 7, it says this, we'll just read it. Jesus said, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from him. By this he meant the spirit, whom, and John is saying, whom those who believed in him would later receive. Up to that time the spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. So there was actually something that had to happen before this could happen. And at that point it hadn't. And then it had happened by the time we get to Ephesians, which I'm really confusing the person here. So in Ephesians 4.8 it says... This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. So the thing that had to happen has happened. Jesus, who died and rose, is now ascended on high. And he sends the Holy Spirit to empower his people to do what he's commissioned them to do. So they have the ability to do what he's called them to do. And he says to them, you're going to need to receive the Spirit to do that. As you go through the New Testament, the whole thing comes out again and again. Just two quick verses to, again, briefly put up. Ephesians 5, 15 to 16. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise. Make the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. That's being a testimony. That's being a witness. That you want to live right, you want to say right, you want to make the most of every, every opportunity. But let's read the rest of it. 17 and 18. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Don't get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. So, if you're going to be able to take advantage of every opportunity, if you're only be able to be, live as you should live in this evil generation, tell people the good news, repentance, forgiveness of sins, Jesus, hope, glory, heaven, the whole deal then you need to be filled with the Spirit. That's the Lord's will. Don't be stupid. Think you need to get, you know, get three pints down you before you can witness. You, that, that's not, you need the Spirit. And you can have him because Jesus is glorified. There's nothing more to do. You haven't got to do anything to earn it. He's done it and he's now finished it like the earlier passage showed. It's now done. He's glorified. So the Spirit can be poured out. And as we face the same challenges as the, tw- as the first century disciples and the tw- 21st century face the same challenges, we need the same equipping that we might be clothed with power from on high. And we're going to end by asking God for that. We're going to end, in, and we've got a little bit of time, praise God. I want us to, I want to have the musicians back up, John and band, and I want us to, to really respond to God. I, I think... Um, well, I'll let the musicians come up, and I, I just need to say to you what I think to do. I think we need to probably physically move, maybe a little bit forward. If we, and, but I, I don't think it's the time when I'm going to be able to pray for everybody. I think it's not that sort of thing. I think it's, God, will you come upon us? God, will you clothe us with power from on high? I want, as they gather, I want another little commentary that blessed me. Matthew Henry. Always good. If you've got a Matthew Henry commentary, have a look at it. It's full of gems. It's written over 300 years ago, right? This is no modern charismatic. But Matthew Henry, commenting on the last two verses of the whole thing, the last 52 and 53, which I'll read to you, then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and stayed continually at the temple praising God. Matthew Henry says this, nothing better prepares the mind for receiving of the Holy Ghost than holy joy and praise. 
It's right. How do you get yourself, how do you receive more? Do you sort of try, oh God, oh please. You know, oh I know he doesn't, he may not bless me. No, that is not the spirit in which we, Jesus is glorified. God wants to clothe us with power from on high. The best way in which to come is in the way they did, with praise and joy. Lord, we want to be clothed with power from on high. We need it, Lord. Yeah, we do. There is an element of crying out. But there's an element of, you've promised it, we expect to receive it. <laughs> Amen? 